But right now, give a, uh, a warm welcome, Pastor Sean Gibson. Man, you know it is a real men's conference when you have to fill out an insurance waiver to participate. You should see what we've got planned for next year. You're going to have to get your last will and testament done before, but it's going to be awesome. Uh, we're going to have an amazing time. And uh, there's a big old cluster over here by the door. I used to think that that was like the people who were slackers, but then you get older and you realize what it is. That's just the prostate club back there. And we just, <laughs> man, we're just praying we can make it through the whole sermon. Um, and... Uh, So uh, let's, let's get started. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for all your many blessings. You've been so good to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us, Lord, that you would lead us, that you would speak to us. We have gathered as your sons to hear your voice. Lord, we know that you have created us. We know that you have saved us. We know, Lord, that you have purpose for us. We ask that you would start that within us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the three, and that is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23, starting in verse 8. I'm going to read verses 8 through 17. This is about David's mighty men. Now, there were 30. It was called the 30, David's mighty men. But there were those who were called the three. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph, Bashabeth, the Tecumanite, chief of the three. He was also called Adino, the Esnite, because of the 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines, and they were gathered there for battle. But the men of Israel had withdrawn. But he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to his sword, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shema, the son of Adji, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled away from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it and struck the Philistines, and the Lord brought about a great victory. These three of the thirty chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time at the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me of the water to drink of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and they took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out upon the, to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, it goes on to then list off the 30. And it says, and it says of, of the great exploits of the 30. And it said many of them had a name unto the three, but they did not attain to the three. We're going to be looking at those three. In Hebrew, that term is called the Shaloshah, the three. And the conference title's point, man. That means the person in the front. And you might think, well, the three, I mean, they, those were the three. 
should I aspire to the three? We should aspire to the three. And I didn't, you know, I, I kind of overlooked this, but then uh, it, was, it was great. Pat Fine came and he talked to me during one of the breaks and he shared with me because he had, he, had, um, he had trained with special forces and he says a troop has 12 men and one of the men is called the point man. That's where the term point man comes from. But the 12 all know that any time they may be called upon to take that, that position of point man. And so I think, yes, we should be aspiring to be the point men. Because in our sphere, we have to take lead, or we may very soon have to take lead, and we should be prepared for it. So here are the three. Let's look at them a little bit. The first one's name is Joseph Bashabeth, the Tekamanite. His name literally means the dweller in tranquility. Odd name, isn't it? The Kind of the peace dweller. And he's of the Tekamanites, which means he's of the wise ones. This guy is essentially the lead in every Mel Gibson movie, right? He's the man, he just wants to marry his high school sweetheart and start a vegetable garden, but then the British or the Aztecs or the Redcoats, or in this case, the Philistines show up, pick a fight, and he has to go and slaughter 800 of them, right? And that's what happens here. He, he goes and he slays, and so after slaying 800 men at one time, they're thinking, hey, dweller of, an, of tranquility, uh, that name doesn't fit. So they rename him, and they rename him Adino the Esnite, which means slender and sharp. Basically, they said, we're going to call you the spear, because that's what he slayed them with. So they, he was known from then on as the spear. The next man, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, his name means the one who is aided by God. He is the son of Dodo, which means son of the beloved. And he is an Ahohite, which means he's one of the brotherhood. Whereas Josheb is kind of of the think tank of civilization. He's from the higher, he's the philosopher. He's the wise one. He is the tranquil one. Here, in this case, Eleazar is like the high school quarterback. He's the popular one. He belongs to the brotherhood. He's one of the adored. And it says that what he does is that he takes his position next to David when they go to fight the Philistines. But the Philistine army is so large that everyone else flees. But Eleazar continues to fight, and he fights beyond human capacity to the point where he can't let go of his sword. His hand has been sealed shut. They have to pry it from his hands. And it says, and the Lord brought through him a great victory. The last one is Shema, the son of Aji, the Herarite. This guy's interesting. His name is Horror. His name is Horror, and he is son of the fugitive. Aji means the fugitive. And they're the Herarites, which means they're the mountain folks. This is the guy coming out of the Ozarks with like half his teeth. And what does he do? Again, here's a bunch of Philistines, and there's a field full of lentils. And he goes, and of course, everybody runs away again. He goes and stands in the middle of the field and says, you ain't getting these beans. These are our beans, no beans for you. And he fights, and it says, the Lord brings him about a great victory through horror, the son of the fugitive. So these men are not the same, are they? We've got those who are really smart. Those are not so smart. We've got those who are really popular, maybe those who are not so popular. But they do have one thing in common. They're all Israelites. The first thing is if we want to aspire to be the three, 
we have to be believers in the one true God. Because you see, a leader has to be going in the right direction. If we're great leaders going the wrong way, nobody should follow us. So they are Israelites. Then it says that the three have this special activity they do. Some people say this is a different three. It doesn't make sense to me because they're the only ones not named. I believe this is the same three. And they go to help David, and David is standing in a stronghold which he has created, and he is opposite Bethlehem, the city that he grew up in. He's looking down upon the streets that he toddled as a child, and it is now occupied by the Philistines. And his family has been ravished, and his, his home has been overrun. And as he's sitting there battling for his homeland, he's thinking, he's remembering the taste of the well that he grew up upon, because obviously each well kind of has its own flavor. And he's like, if only I could drink of that. And the three are like, yeah, got it, boom, and they run. And they fight through the Philistines to draw water so that David could have a drink. He didn't command them to do this. They did this out of love. And they bring it back, and David is so impacted by this, he says, I can't drink this. This is your blood. I'm not worthy to drink this. This is worthy of worship unto the Most High God. And he pours out their effort as worship to God. That's pretty cool. And so what I'm going to propose to you right now is that these three, the three, the Shaloshah, they are the manifestation of another verse we may be familiar with. What they live can be rolled up into a verse that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to us. He said, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. They have three qualities that I want to present to you. And I'm going to use the center word of that verse. It says, act like men. So I'm going to use that, 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 that simple word as, as kind of a mnemonic, A-C-T. That spells cat. No, it doesn't. It spells act for you, you know, um, Shema, son of Aji. But it's okay. It's A-C-T, and this is what it stands for. Approved, committed, tender. So let's look at it. First of all, the three were approved. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. You see, the three were the three because they were warriors. They knew what to do with a weapon. They were not picked to be the three because they were good knitters. They were warriors. They had a skill set. And they were masters of that skill set. And here the scripture says that we should have a skill set, that we should not be workmen who need to be ashamed. If a plumber came to your house but didn't know what to do with a pipe wrench, if a carpenter came to your house and didn't know how to use a tape measure, if a welder came to your house and didn't know how to start his welder, you would say, no, thank you, you can leave. You should be ashamed of yourself. How can you call yourself a master of this technique when you don't even know the tool? And we are called Christians, the people of the book. And if we don't know the book, maybe we're posers and not really Christians. We should be ashamed if we don't know how to use the tool that the Lord has given us. And so this first thing about being approved is that we should be people of this word, masters of this book. Uh, some of you have seen my office. Some of you haven't seen my office. I'll describe it really quick. On one wall, I have a lot of swords. 
metal swords. And on the other wall, I have a lot of pages. They are Bible pages from the 1400s and 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. It's kind of a history of the scripture. These are my sword walls. And, and the reason these are my two sword walls is comes back to my favorite verse, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is my life verse. Um, and check this out. Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam rocks the planet. Pastor Sam knows that this is my verse. And so when I couldn't read my Bible because somehow the word shrunk, he got me a large print Bible. <laughs> And he wrapped it in leather, and he wrapped it in leather with a sheath, and it has a sword that has Hebrews 4.12 on it. <laughs> Pastor Sam rocks the planet. He's my brother. In fact, what he's doing, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you later on how that is also a quality of the three. But he knows this is my verse. Now, my office is, I'm the principal or the headmaster of, of the school, and so there's times when kids are in my office. And they always ask me, why do you have swords on your wall? And I'm thinking, duh, because they're swords, <laughs> right? It's like, I'd be like asking, why do you have awesome things on your wall? Because they're awesome, right? But I understand what they're saying. It's like, why do you have a sword? Because it's not as if somebody's going to take some enemy, like, I don't know, an Ottoman Turk, put him in a time machine and shoot him up into, and he's going to storm the building here, you know, wielding his simtar, and if they did, you know, and I was to grab one of those swords off the wall, I'd die. Because I don't know how to use that sword. I don't handle that sword. Well, I handle the sword like when nobody's around, you know. When nobody's around, of course, I swing. You know, when you just need that little boost of testosterone, I swing it around a little bit until I break something and then I hang it back on the wall. So they go, why do you have that sword? But here's the thing. I'm not really worried about somebody sending an Ottoman Turk through a time machine. But I have an enemy who tries to kill me every single day. And he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And so I am a sword master when it comes to this book. Because this is my only weapon. And the idea here is that he's a real enemy. He's been trying to kill me for 55 years. He's been trying to destroy my faith for 37 years. He's been trying to destroy my marriage for 35 years. He's been trying to destroy the, my ministry for 20 years. And by the grace of God and the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony, I'm still here. And so this sword we must master. How do we know that? Because this sword talks, and it says so. Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Your word I have treasured in my heart. Your word I have memorized that I may not sin against you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's all there is, day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. God has made it clear. He gave us his word. 
And we are to be workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. The three were approved. We are to be approved. I've got a question at the end of each of these little letters, and I hope it stings. It stung me. I hope it stings you. Gentlemen, are you in the word every day? Are you mastering this book? If not, I'm going to propose you might be a poser because we are not supposed to be ashamed. That's approved. Second, the three were committed. C, committed. Revelations 12, 11 says, and the saints overcame the devil because of the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their own life even when faced with death. We are to be committed. In each of these battles, there's something in common. Everyone else ran. Why did they run? Because it was impossible. Okay, if I was walking down an alley and I saw five men coming at me, I would conclude pretty quick, I'm not Jason Borden, I think I'm going down. If there was 10, it would be like, I'm dead. He took on 800. I'm sorry, you might be good, but nobody's that good. The reason all Israel ran is because they said, that army's too big, we're dying. So why was it that the three didn't run? They didn't run because they would face the impossible because they were committed to the truth. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. There is a change, a shift in their mindset. And I want you, you know, we, we're hearing amazing messages. And I want to help you out with something because these messages have been spectacular but there's something that could rob all of their power out of your heart. And that is this idea that you can't. That somehow that that's good, but that's not going to happen. I want to I eradicate that lie from your head right now. The Bible makes it very clear. You only do what you want most. If you sin, that's what you wanted most. It was your choice. It wasn't the government's fault. It wasn't Hollywood's fault. It wasn't the, somebody else's fault. It's our fault. We only do that which we want most. The Bible never says we're forced into anything. And you may say, no, there's been times I've had to do things that I, that, you know, that I didn't want most. Sure. Well, no, if I wouldn't have lied, I would have lost that job. Because you want that job more than you want truth. We only do that which we want most. And so with that, we need to understand that we've been given the power to choose. And I thought, you know, before I preach this, you know, that's kind of a strong thing. Is that real? And I thought, but what about Romans 7? Because Romans 7 makes it feel like maybe I don't do that which I want most. Let me remind you, it says in, in Romans 7, Paul says, I find there's a principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good for I joyfully agree with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my flesh, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other side with my flesh, the law of sin." 
And most people stop right there because it's the end of the chapter. Here's the problem. You can't stop right there. And if you make a conclusion based on that, you will become a heretic. You will become a Gnostic. The Gnostics believed that with my spirit, I could believe truth and could be saved. But with my bodies, my body was completely corruptible. And so it was okay. I could go and sleep around and I could sin and everything else. Because with my mind over here, this other compartment of my life, I could be holy. Like somehow that like, you know, uh, I remember when I was younger, somebody said, hey, man, that's what confession's for. You can go do this almost as if the blood of Christ is a ticket to sin. That's heresy. And you only come to that conclusion because you stop at the end of the chapter. The problem is Paul didn't put any chapter breaks. This is one letter. And if you stop there, you miss the context. Let's read on. Chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh, I'm going to say those who obey the flesh, that's what that means, according to the flesh, those who walk according to the flesh, those are those who obey the flesh. Those who obey the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Let me, that word set is really important. Set means choose. So let me reread it. Those who obey the flesh choose the flesh. Those who obey the spirit choose the spirit. For choosing the flesh is death, but choosing the spirit is life and peace. Because choosing the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to God, the mind that is choosing that way, to the law of God. It cannot, it's not even able to do that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. Let me describe what that means. There is this idea that does my flesh want to sin? Yes. But that doesn't mean I must sin. And 1 Thessalonians, maybe 2 Thessalonians, you see, the Gnostics were dichotomistic. They had a dual um, idea of mankind. And the idea is that all I am is spirit and flesh. And so my spirit can be saved and my flesh can sin. That's dumb. Because the Bible says that we're trichotomistic. We're a trinity. In Thessalonians, it said that we might be preserved complete in body, soul, and spirit. So let me describe these. The body or the flesh nature is that which was corrupted from Adam and has been building upon and the sins of the father are passed to the son. And then I chose to sin it out of my sins on top of it. The flesh is corrupted and it's not going with us. Then I have my soul. My soul is my thinking, my feeling, and my choosing. My mind, my heart, and my will. What we might call our personality. This is my soul. Then over here is my spirit. And for those who've received the spirit of Christ, it says that we've been born again, created anew. We are now temples of the spirit of God who dwells within us. And the Holy Spirit communicates with our spirit where our conscience dwells. This has been completely redeemed and is incorruptible. Now let me show you how this works. The flesh is all in. 
The flesh, I can tell you the flesh's answer always. You know the flesh's answers. Here's the flesh. I'm the flesh. Should we pray? No. You want to go to church? No, I don't. I don't want to go to church. Do you want to sin? Yes. Okay, the flesh, the vote's been cast. We know what it's going to say. The spirit, what's the spirit? The spirit's the one saying, let's, let's worship the Lord. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's defend this field. Let's take ground. Let's go. We're sons of God. It's, it's vote's been cast. My soul cast the deciding vote. What am I going to choose? Because now that I have the spirit of Christ, I am free to make that choice. The Lord's given me the power to make that choice. What am I going to choose? Am I going to choose the flesh? If I choose the flesh, it's death. If I choose the spirit, it is life and peace. And this choice, by the way, this is, this is the part that hopefully the sobering part. I'm responsible and accountable for this choice. I cannot blame anybody else for this choice. I will do what I most want to do. Will I listen here or will I listen here? Now, this is why this is important. If we get to be approved and we're in the word every day, meditating on it day and night, I guarantee you that the Lord will speak to you something impossible. He will start talking to you. Okay, this is what I created you for. And you're going to go, that's impossible. He goes, yeah. Ready? And then we get to choose. All right, so we have no excuse to sin. But what keeps us from really attaining to the three? Truthfully, it comes from a doubt. A doubt into two natures of God. Is God going to provide and is God going to protect? Most of the time when I see what God's calling me into and I'm thinking like, man, that's impossible. I'm thinking like, I can't afford that. I don't have the money to do. I don't have the resources to do that. Are you following me? Maybe you've heard God speak to you to do something, help somebody, give somewhere, go do something, be on a mission trip, take on a ministry, and you go, I can't afford to. Can I tell you what that is? That's idolatry. Because what we're saying is, essentially, I have another God called money, and money is the power of my life. No, it's not. God is the power of your life. I can't afford to. Well, what are you looking at? Your wallet or God? Because we all know, Pastor Chuck, one of the idioms is where God guides, he provides. Now, is that really true? Yes. It's true. I thought, man, is that really true in my life? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it is. I remember coming into the ministry. I was an environmental scientist and I was a consultant and I was making really good money and I was miserable and I knew that the Lord was calling into ministry. So my wife, Dorothy, and I, we had prayed. We finally come to a commitment. We knew that God was calling us. We were, I was going to quit my job, and we were going to go into the mission field. And the reason we had chose the mission field is because we were part of a little church. It was just a really small church, you know, a couple dozen, you know, 40 fo folks or something. And there was no way that they were going to be able to bring on a, a, a second pastor or anything. So I was going to call my pastor and let him know, hey, I'm going to resign because we're going into the mission field, you know, pray for us, we're going to go in the mission field. And when I went to talk to him, he says, oh, man, I was just going to call you. Really? He says, yeah, I need to meet with you. He says, God told me something. Can we have coffee? I'm like, sure. So we get there, and he says, okay, I go first. I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, right? 
And he says, this morning, I heard so clearly in my quiet time, God told me to make you an offer. What does that mean? And I'm like, I don't know, because I was telling you I'm going to quit the church because I'm going to go because God called me into the ministry. He goes, oh, well, there you go. God told me to make you an offer. He's calling you into the ministry. He told me to make you an offer. You must be supposed to minister here. And I'm like, yeah, but I still got to, like, feed my family. And he says, well, what do you need? And I said, well, we really need 400 a week. He goes, yeah, we don't have it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. He says, so what are you going to do? What do you mean, what am I going to do? You just said you don't have it. He says, I know. But you just told me God told you to go into the ministry, and I just told you God told me to make you an offer. What are you going to do? So I called up my wife. I said, Dorothy. She goes, yeah. I said, they don't, they, don't, they don't have any money. She goes, oh. I said, so I start Monday. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes, what? I go, yeah, this is this. We got to obey God. And obviously, I didn't starve. And then, I mean, come on, let's face it. Look at this church. This is Berlin. <laughs> Look at this church. This church shouldn't be here. This is a blend. This should be a double wide. <laughs> what has God done here? God is moving in a supernatural way. This building is open at 7 a.m. and it goes till 9 p.m. every night. This place is hopping. God is moving. And there is no way we should be able to do this. Pastor Ray has so many stories of how God has provided. <laughs> then we have a school. And I could, I could fill up the rest of the day telling you stories of, about how God supernaturally has provided for this school. So does God provide? Yes, I've experienced it. But what about protection? Okay, yeah, I get it. God's going to provide. But what about protection? What about when it's dangerous? Have I ever seen God supernaturally protect? And then I thought, well, yeah. My son, my oldest son, when he was about 15, he felt called. He had an opportunity to go into the Philippines on a mission trip for about five or six weeks or something. And he goes, Dad, I really feel like the Lord's calling me to go on this trip. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to pray hard because I don't got no money. And the Lord provided. And, and so it's like, and Dorothy and I prayed and we had peace that he should go to the Philippines. So we're all on board. Hey, bro, God provided. You're going to go to the Philippines. And then they started chopping off heads of Christian uh, missionaries in the Philippines. And it's like, oh. And so everybody's like, you're not going to send your kid, are you? He's 15. I'm like, yeah, we prayed. I have peace. He has peace. We have peace. Like, I, I called up the guy's lead. And I'm like, you still going? Yeah, I'm still going. Okay. And he went to the Philippines. He was there for six weeks. Came back, had a head. It was great. <laughs> it worked. And my youngest grows up. He has an opportunity to go to Ethiopia. And I'm like, whew, Ethiopia. I never hear about Ethiopia in the news. And so he's about ready to go to Ethiopia, and about, and about the time they're getting on the plane, news program, Ethiopia, on the brink of civil war. Okay. Go, my youngest baby son. Go. Right? And then goes, and he comes back. And then we go, we go, and so we start doing mission work in Peru. And so we do it in the jungle. And to get into the jungle, you have to fly Star Peru, which is an airline. The reason they call it an airline is because Star Peru owns two planes. So they're an airline. One plane goes to the jungle and one plane goes up into the Andes, right? So we're on the plane that goes into the jungle and we're flying in this plane 
seven something seven and I look and there's this little for whatever reason I'm sitting and there's a, a little metal tag on the wall and I look and it says data manufacturer of manufacture and it's the 60s and I'm like this plane was built when I was five years old what are we doing in this plane but I'm like okay well they must in Peru they must know what they're doing <laughs> and so we flew into the jungle and we did our whole thing then we flew out of the jungle we were there for like four weeks. We flew out of the jungle. Next week, who's in the news? I always, God always says, you just watch the news. I'll let me tell you what I'm doing. And um, Star Peru crashed. The flight that goes to Pucallpa crashed in the jungle. It's the same plane. In fact, I think it was the next time it flew. It crashed in the jungle. And I'm like, I knew it, <laughs> right? So then a couple years later, we fly into Peru uh, not Star Peru, I don't know what it was, some other airline, because they had two planes. And so we flew in, and we get into Pucallpa, this jungle city, and a paro breaks out. And a paro is like a, uh, a union um, revolt, the kind that we used to have in these states back in the 1800s. It's very militant. And so what had happened is that the government of Peru had pushed down on the, on the growing of coca plants. And so the idea is that they wanted to stop the cocaine trade. Well, all of the coca growers in the jungle decided, well, we're going to revolt. And what they did is they go to Pucallpa because Pucallpa is like this big spread out jungle village. But there's like a million people there and 50 police officers. So they're like, we'll go in and take over. And they take over via the unions. The biggest union in this jungle city is the moto union. And the motos are a motorcycle that have like a little bench seat on the back, like a taxi. And so there's all the moto drivers. So the coca growers came in and they bought out the unions. And so what they do is the moto drivers start going and they get all of the young, angry teenage males and they take boards and drive nails through them. So there's nails sticking out of them. And then they just ride roughshod over the over the city, threatening to hurt anybody who does anything. They try to just shut down the city to get the government to capitulate. And I'm there with a bunch of teenagers and we're like, well, we got a minister. So we're like smuggling and sneaking around and doing ministry um, in the middle of this paro. And, um, and fortunately, this isn't a time when you just couldn't text or anything. So none of the parents knew. So we just kept going. <laughs> and it was really good. And then it's time to leave Pucallpa. And they're like, well, we're going to have to get to the airport really early because it's getting really hot and heavy. So we get to the airport. And we all get in, we kiss and shake everybody's hands and hug them goodbye. And we get on the plane and we leave. And within an hour, the Paro took over the airport and locked it down. And then they had to send in the, the, the Peruvian Marines to go and liberate the, the airport and everything. So within an hour of us leaving, it all just fell apart. So I'm thinking like, yeah, God protects. He told us to go. We went. So the God of Elijah... It's my God. The God who split the Red Sea, that's my God. The God who's defeated all the enemies of, of Christ is my God. And so when it comes to being committed, why can we commit to impossible odds? Because our Father said so. And so this idea is we need to be committed. He will provide. He will protect. I thought about going and getting other stories, like, you know, Googling stories. But then I thought, no, if it hasn't happened in my life, then I'm, then I'm selling unused goods. God's proven himself. And I bet you, you guys all have testimonies to the same thing. 
how God supernaturally moved in your lives and, and, and how he provided for you supernaturally, how he protected you. Let's face it, we're all men. We should have been dead how many times? We've made so many stupid decisions. There's only the mercy of God that we're all sitting here. God provides and he protects. That's why we should be committed to him. So I've got a question for you. Are you fully committed? Are you fully committed to the call? If he calls you, you should not answer something like, well, you know, I'll pray about it. I'm going to try, you know, and if I can, possibly, maybe I'll, that's just shut up. That's wussy. If God says do something, you're supposed to say, it's real simple. Yes, Lord. I, I, I'm the, I'm the prince. I'm the swatty man. I'm the headmaster of the school. And I always have little kids in there and they're always getting in trouble. And I'm like, guys, it's very simple. It's easier to obey than to disobey. When your teacher says, sit down, you say, yes, ma'am. And you sit down. I have this discussion approximately eight times a day. <laughs> right? Teacher says, get up. You say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And you get up. Got it? Got it. Okay, good. That works for us too. God says, do it. We say, yes, Lord. And we do it. And we count our life cheap because he's given us everything. Approved, committed, final, tender. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that speaking in tongues is a good thing? That's a good thing. What about speaking prophecy? Is that a good thing? Word of prophecy. Word of knowledge, word of wisdom, those good things? Gifts of the Spirit. Um, what about um, faith? The gift of faith. Is the gift of faith a good thing? Faith to move mountains. Would that be a good thing? That's a good thing. What about generosity and giving to the poor? Selling all you have and giving it to the poor. I think Jesus told the rich young ruler to do that. I think Zacchaeus said he'd do that. I think that's a good thing. What about the idea of doing what I just said and we just live all the way and we don't even care? We'll, we'll, we'll be martyred for Christ. Is that a good thing? Those are all really good things. Those are things Jesus told us to do. Those are things the Bible told us to do. Check out this verse. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have, do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. So did I just undo everything I just said? No. It's that if we want to be the three, we have to have all three. They went to get the water because they were commanded? No, because they loved David. You see, if we have great doctrine... And if we have great um, works, we've got, the, we've got the orthodoxy, we've got the orthopraxy, we've got good stuff, but we don't have love, God's not happy at all. How do I know? Jesus said so to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelations, right? I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you've got good doctrine and you've got good works. Your latter works are better than the first works, but I have this against you, you've lost your first love. And when I read it, I thought, well, it's not bad. You know, that happens. You lose your first love. That's not a big deal, is it? And then he says, repent or I'll remove you from my presence. Oh, that's a big deal. It's a big deal to lose your love. Why? Because Jesus says, that's who I am. That is who I am. The Pharisees, did they know Bible? 
they memorized the Torah. Did they obey? They obeyed all of those little laws. And Jesus, you heard what Sandy said. You, vi you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you. <laughs> Jesus wasn't happy with them. Why? Because they missed the main thing. When they asked Jesus, what's the biggest commandment? I'm paraphrasing. He said, love God, love man. He says, that's in the Old Testament, the most important part, love God, love man. New Testament, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you should also love one another. Why? Because then all men out there will know that you are mine because of the way you love. Men are the best lovers. Christian men are the best lovers. This is not a girl thing. This is a man thing. This is a Christ thing. We are to be lovers. Um, my best example of this is I have a friend in Germany. His name is Alexander Schroeder. He, he had a son named Manuel who was an exchange student, lived with us for a year, and then came back to go to college. So he kind of was with us. Manuel was with us for the better part of five years. And Alexander is his dad. And he grew up, this was East Block, Germany. This is not West Block, this was East Block. So Alexander grew up um, behind the Iron Curtain and, uh, and he was a successful businessman. He's, he's probably a millionaire or whatever. So anyway, he was just very appreciative of the way we loved on his son. And so he said, you know what? I, I want you to come and see Germany. And he flew us out to Germany. And so I, this was the first time I really got to spend time with Alexander. And this is the way it works with Alexander. We're walking through a market or something, and I'm just walking, I'm looking around, it's cool, this is Germany, this is really cool. And I might be just walking about, and, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool, that's, wow, that's great. And I keep walking, I f and then we leave the market, and I feel a tap on my shoulder. And it's like, tap, tap, tap. Yes, what is it? Sean, I bought you something. <laughs> what? I saw you looked at it, I bought you this. Wow, so I had to quit looking at things. <laughs> Because he was watching me and he was always looking and he was watching my wife and he was watching my kids and he tried to figure out what do they need? What do they want? What do they like? What do they love? He, he was loving us. Man, you squint too wild. It's like, here, Sean, I bought you sunglasses. Hey, thanks. Right? Can I tell you what it's like to have that happen to you? You know what it's like to have that happen. You ever have somebody love you like that? Now, here's the thing. He had very broken English and I didn't know any German. But I can tell you this. When Alexander said, Sean, can I say something? <laughs> you say anything you want. <laughs> he goes, I think Jesus is really good. And that would hit me like a brick. <clears throat> something about the way he loved me made his words so immensely powerful. Right? So, so Pastor Sam, look at this. this. This was extremely thoughtful. Pastor Sam could come up to me and he could go, Sean, can I tell you something? It's like, Sam, you tell me, you tell me I'm fat, I'm ugly, anything you want. And whatever he tells me, I'm going to listen because he loves me. You see, that's a mark of a Christian. We love. And uh, in case you think this is getting too kind of girly with this love thing, um, General Boykin. General Boykin gave the definition of a warrior. Now, it was a big, long paragraph, and I couldn't memorize it, so I boiled it down to its three points, and I thought it was an amazing definition of a warrior. And this is uh, General Boykin's definition of a warrior. The first part is, a warrior knows what he loves most. He starts the definition with love. He says, a warrior knows what he loves most. So number two, he says, because of that, a lawyer, uh, I mean, a warrior recognizes the enemy of what he loves most. Amen. And third, he says, a warrior stands between what he loves most and the enemy. Son, is that a good definition or what? 
A warrior is someone who knows what he loves most and because of that he recognizes the enemy of what he loves most and a warrior stands between what he loves most and the enemy. And that's what we're called to be, the giborim, the mighty men, the warriors. Now, that's a great definition, but if you don't put it under what I just said, you could go awry with it. And let me explain why. You need to know what you love most. What you love most is Jesus. You love Jesus more than your wife. You love Jesus more than your children. You love Jesus more than your career. You love Jesus more than your dreams. You love Jesus more than yourself. Because if you don't, you're a heretic and you're an idolater. If we get that out of whack, we will get weird. We have to love Jesus most. Why? Because he is the artery of love. He is love. He is the main channel of agapeo. And if we do not tap into him, we have nothing to offer. You decide to love your wife without loving Jesus first, I feel for your wife. Because she's just going to get the best of what you can squeeze. And that's not good. We don't have the capacity, men. Not really. But you love Jesus first. And you'll be Don Juan. I mean, you will be the best lover. Without Jesus, you're Mortimer Snurd. Man, you are, you're Homer Simpson. You're, with Jesus, you are now in a position to love if you don't love Jesus first, I feel for your children. You will lead them astray. With Jesus first, you'll die for your children and you will teach them good things. Without Jesus, you might be apt to do like, you've probably done it, I did it. You know, well, I've always said, and I give some like platitude of wisdom, which is stupid. Try everything once and what you like, try twice. No, that's no, 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 that's bad advice. Worldly advice is bad advice. If we love Jesus first, what do we tell our children? We tell our children is that God knows the plans he has for you, my son, plans of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God has called you to sacrifice yourself, son. God has called you to be the man. This is what God says about you in his word. Now, that's working. So this is the idea. So now here's the stinging question. Are you ready for the sting? The sting is, are you known as a loving man? Because you might be a theologian and you might have a pretty, pretty clean language, but if you're not known as a loving man, we're a joke. Amen. We're nothing. We're to be, if we want to be the Shaloshah, if we want to be the three, if we want to be the Gibberim, if we want to be the mighty men, if we want to be the sons of God, then we need to be approved, we need to be committed, but we need to be tender, we need to be the lovers. Ultimately, these are the characteristics of the three because they are the characteristics of Christ. The idea is that we're supposed to know the word. Well, Jesus is the word. He is the word. And when Satan came to him, remember Jesus had not eaten. He had not drank for 40 days and 40 nights. He was on the verge of death. He had pushed his physical body to its absolute limits. He is at his weakest point. And Satan shows up to attack him. And Jesus looks up and goes, man, this isn't fair. And Satan goes, I know, but you're going to have to deal with it. And he goes, no, it's not fair for you. <laughs> I think I'll take you on... 
just with the book of Deuteronomy. And so Satan attacks him three times and Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And all he quotes is two chapters of Deuteronomy. Could you kick Satan's butt with your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy? Then maybe we better study some more, right? Why? This is, Jesus is the word. We're to be committed. Was Jesus committed? It says, for this is my commandment that you love as I have loved you, greater love has no man than this, than one lays down his life for his friends. I no longer call you slaves, but I call you my friends. You want to know how committed God is to you? Then you, why don't you cast your eyes on the most beautiful thing in the cosmos, and it is a bloody Savior on a bloody cross because he loves you. He was committed to the end. And what about loving? Jesus is the lover. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus loves us all the way, and he doesn't stop. In fact, right now, he went from the one who bled for us to the point where now he is the one who intercedes for us. He is our intercessor. He prays for you every day. This is our God. We're to be the mighty men. Why? We're to be the three. Why? Because we're the Christians. More specifically, we're the Christian men. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with hearts bowed low because we confess that we have not honored you as our provider or our protector or our first love. Forgive us, Lord, for allowing lies and sin into our life. Jesus, would you wash us in your blood? Would you make us new creations through the power of your Holy Spirit? Lord, give us a holy hunger for your word, for your word is truth. Anoint us to know your word and to love your word and to live your word and to speak your word. Lord, that we might be found approved. Lord, we commit our lives to you. You have rescued us from hell and you have promised us eternity in your presence. There's nothing too much you could ask of us. Give us the courage to follow you anywhere you call us. And finally, God, would you remove our hearts of stone and would you give us hearts of flesh so that we will love what you love and hate what you hate and go where you go and speak your truth in love. We ask this in the name of our first love, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.